Good morning. Happy Mother's Day to you. Uh, my gift to my mom this morning is that I'm not going to tell any stories about her from stage. Uh, that's for later. Uh, we are in our series, The Gospel for Scoundrels, and I promise you I'm not going to make any jokes correlating moms and scoundrels this morning. Uh, I will say, this is not a story, but I will say my mom had the job of raising four scoundrels, and for that we love her. Last week, J.D. walked us through the life of Isaac and uh, Genesis 26, and today we pick up our story with one of Isaac's sons, Jacob, his younger son. And if there's one story that, that kind of encapsulates this idea of the gospel for scoundrels, it's this one that we find ourselves in today. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis 28. That's where we'll be this morning. Have you ever run away from home? I think I've run away from home one time that I can remember. Um, I didn't want to do the dishes. Uh, I think I was about 18 or 19. Uh, no, that's not true. Uh, so I ran out the back sliding door, ran down the path in my socks, and I ran down and I found a rock and I just sat on it. Uh, I just sat there, didn't know what I was going to do. Wasn't going to do the dishes, I'll tell you that. And uh, I just sat there. And then this kid rode his bike by and I got super uncomfortable. So I got up and I went back home and I think I probably did the dishes. Uh, they were there waiting for me when I got back. Well, we pick up our story today with Jacob on the run. He's run away from home. So clearly something has happened between where we left off last week and where we pick it up this morning. And it's something rather important. Isaac has, has grown old and is now nearly blind and he knows that death is near for him. So he, he calls his older son Esau into his room and he tasks him with going out and hunting and finding him a delicious meal because as we know Esau is a, a skilled hunter. Now Isaac's wife Rebecca is listening nearby and so she goes to their younger son Jacob and tells him of the plan that she has just hatched. She tells Jacob to, to go to his blind father pretending to be Esau so that he might bless him rather than Esau. Now, this is all Rebecca's plan, and again, not going to make any jokes about moms and scoundrels, but Jacob goes along with the plan, and he covers himself in goat skin, because as we know, Esau is a very hairy man, and he clothes himself in Esau's clothes, and he goes into his father's room, bringing him a delicious meal. Not that he has gone out and hunted, but that Rebecca has made. And an old, blind Isaac draws Jacob near and blesses him. He says this in chapter 27. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now, almost as soon as Isaac finishes speaking these words of blessing to Jacob, Esau returns home from his hunt. And he's now found out that a conniving Jacob has stolen his birthright as well as his blessing. And Esau becomes bitter and resentful towards his brother Jacob. And he now has this plan. He's going to wait for his father Isaac to die, and then he's going to kill Jacob. And Rebekah catches wind of this plan as well, and so she sends Jacob to her brother Laban in Haran. He's given the direction to, to not take a wife from the Canaanite women like Esau, but to take one from his own clan. And once again, Isaac blesses him and sends him on his way. Rebecca thought of Haran as a safe haven for her wayward younger son because one, it's far enough away that Esau may not follow or may not track him down. And two, there's family in Haran. Her brother Laban is there and so Jacob would not be alone. The conniver, the liar, the, the scoundrel that is Jacob is on the run from his brother Esau. 
His, his journey is going to be about 500 miles to Haran, and he covers about 40 miles in that first day. And his first pit stop on his journey to Haran is where we pick up the story this morning. So if you're in Genesis 28, we'll be in verses 10 through 22. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Um, God, would you uh, bless your word. Speak to us today and uh, be working in our our hearts and our lives as we go about the rest of our our week. In your name we pray. Amen. So I've, I've broken up this section, this passage, into three different pieces. First, we have the journey, then we have the dream, and then we have the response. So first, the journey, which we find in verses 10 and 11. So we know that the journey is going to be about 500 miles, uh, but I wonder if there's another sort of journey that God has Jacob on. The journey for Jacob was strictly geographical. He was running away from his brother Esau, and he was running to try to find a wife. He's thinking, I need to go from Beersheba and travel north through this land and return to my ancestral home. But I think God has him on a different sort of journey, one that that we'll unpack here in a little bit. You know, a a lot of times we think we're just going from place A to place B, but God often has us on different journeys, making us from person A to person B, and I think that's what's going on right here in Jacob's life. What do you think Jacob was feeling that night? Lonely? Isolated? Homesick, this could have been his first night away from home because as we know, he, he was a homebody or, or a tent dweller. And the rage of Esau for stealing his birthright and his blessing was eating away at Jacob's heart. It, it's a terrible weight to be hated so much. But how bitter it must have been for Jacob knowing that the misery he felt had been unnecessary. It, it was a creation of his own unbelieving deceit and stupidity. 
One commentator puts it this way, the vulture that was eating his vitals was reared in his own nest. Jacob was profoundly alone in a wasteland full of real and present danger. The place he finds himself is both geographically and mentally dreary. Have you ever felt that way? I think there's a a parallel that can be made between this story and another story that Jesus would tell 2,000 years later. One of my favorite stories, the, the parable of the prodigal son. Now this word prodigal means recklessly extravagant, having spent everything. And Jacob, the younger son, had everything. Abraham and Isaac had acquired great wealth. They were famous in the land. They were kings in their own right. And as Jesus tells it, the prodigal son leaves behind wealth and flees and ends up with the pigs. Here, Jacob is surely leaving behind all this prosperity. And here we find him with hardly a staff to his name and a rock for a pillow. But the rock pillow works because he has a dream. And the dream is in verses 12 through 15. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth. And the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. The Hebrew suggests that that this passage is as if Jacob is exclaiming with uplifted arm and open mouth in astonishment. Like, oh, there's a ladder, and, and look, there's angels, and look, the Lord himself. Now, this is a a picture of the exact opposite of the Tower of Babel. At Babel, we have humans trying to build a tower up to heaven to allow them access to God. And in contrast to Babel, this time, God builds the tower down to earth, or in our case, a ladder or a staircase. Now, whether it's a ladder or, or a staircase or whatever, it doesn't matter. But what does matter is that God has placed it here on Jacob's behalf, and it's freighted with angels. The angels that Jacob sees are God's messengers or God's servants, and they're ascending and descending to show that they are protecting Jacob. God is presiding over the commerce of Jacob's life. He's directing everything. Charles Spurgeon says, The God of Bethel, which is where Jacob is, is a God who concerns himself with the things of the earth, not a God who shuts himself up in heaven, but a God who hath a ladder fixed between heaven and earth. And along with the angels, Jacob also sees the Lord himself. And and the Lord blesses him, saying this, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. God did not rebuke Jacob for participating in Rebekah's scheme. Instead, he spoke words of promise and assurance. God here is essentially repeating the terms that he made with uh, Abraham and Isaac. Now, Isaac earlier in, in chapter 28 had told Jacob that the covenant was his. But here, the voice of God is confirming it in his life. The same God that cared for Isaac and that cared for Abraham is pledging to take care of Jacob here and to give him the very land that he was sleeping on. God is promising to be with Jacob. Think about the the, the context of Genesis and really the first five books of the Bible. They're all written by Moses to the people entering into the promised land. They're reading 
and, and hearing about God's promise to Jacob and then experiencing God fulfill that promise as they enter into the promised land. Now, in those days, there was this idea that, that when you ran away from home or when you left home, you left your God at home. And maybe Jacob had this idea running around in his head. Maybe Jacob had a limited view of God. When he was running away from home, he was also running away from God. And, and again, I think we can make parallels with this story and another story, and that's the story of Jonah. Uh, we don't find Jonah's story in Genesis, but he's surely a scoundrel. Now, Jonah ran away from Nineveh to Tarshish, and in his mind, he was also running away from God. But what he found along the journey was that God was right there with him, just like we find it in here in our story with Jacob. Now, J.D. talked last week about God's special and and spatial presence with us at all times. And he used one of my favorite quotes from from John Wesley, who lived a life dedicated to God. He lived for Christ, and he, he was on his deathbed looking back on his life, and he said, the best of all, is this, God with us. The best of all is this, God with us. And God says this to to Jacob, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. The, The fact that God would give Jacob a place to sleep is nothing compared to the promise of I am with you. The fact that God would send angels to protect Jacob is nothing compared to the promise of I am with you. This is the significance of the latter, that God will never leave Jacob. And this is all grace. Jacob, the the conniving believer, was outcast and alone due to his own sin. He merited nothing from God, but was met by God in his misery with a promise for God's care and assurance for his future. Jacob wasn't seeking God. In fact, he was doing the complete opposite. He was fleeing from God. He was not expecting grace, but grace was unleashed on his soul. And that's why we sing, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Our prodigal Jacob is met by a God running towards him, just like we find in the parable of the prodigal son, with a father running towards his son who's returned home. And just like we see in Jonah, with a God who continues to provide for prodigal Jonah. Grace is Jacob's only hope, and grace is our only hope. And that leads into Jacob's response in 16 through 22. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep, and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and, and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. Now we can break apart Jacob's response to this dream in, in three different pieces, amazement and fear, worship, and then a vow. So first, amazement and fear. Jacob was astounded because, like a lot of us, we can so often forget that God is with us especially in times of trouble, and especially when those times of trouble are our own fault. When we have caused a mess in our lives, uh, God is with us right there through it all. Fleeing sinner, God is there. Evil schemer, God is there. Sinful sufferer, God is there. Faithless one, God is faithful. As 2 Timothy 2.13 reminds us, when we are faithless, God is faithful. And in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, it says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. 
If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your right hand shall hold me. Now this word awesome that Jacob uses when he says how awesome is this place has this sense of fear or dread. It could also be read as dreadful. So how dreadful is this place? It's the, it's the Hebrew word yare, and it's the same word used in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit and they become dreadful of the presence of God and they, they hide themselves. Now this place that Jacob's in is only dreadful for a few like Jacob, a sinner running away from God. He's met with the very thing that he's trying to run away from. Every house of God ought to be dreadful for a sinner running away from God. But it's also a place where every sinner ought to be able to come face to face with God and experience his astonishing grace. And then that leads in to Jacob worshiping. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at first. So Jacob takes the stone pillow that he had used to sleep on and he sets it up as a stone pillar. Now, and he pours oil on it. And this demonstrated his love and his devotion to God as well as consecrated the place as holy. Now pouring out of a liquid was uh, a symbolic of pouring one's life out in devotion to God. So why does Jacob raise a, a pillar rather than build an altar like his grandfather Abraham, it could have been a connection to the staircase or the ladder that he sees in his dream. But nevertheless, God is acknowledging Jacob here. Or Jacob is acknowledging God, rather. The pillar becomes a monument, marking not only the place, but also the event. And then it leads into his vow. Jacob says this, If God will be with me and will keep me in his way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now, if and, and then are not languages, it's not the language of faith. Faith does not bargain with God. His anointing of the, the stone pillow into a stone pillar was a true act of worship, but his vow was vintage conniving Jacob. Jacob here is still more scoundrel than saint. The, the if could also be translated as since, but knowing Jacob, he undoubtedly meant it as if God will be with me. God gave him a promise, yet he still tried to bargain with God, even promising him money if he did what he promised. And the way that Jacob prays here makes it clear that God's word was not enough for him. He had to see it to believe it. And he's speaking as if he could set the terms uh, of his covenant with God. He's trying to make a deal with God rather than humbly re uh, receiving what God said would be the arrangement. He's not very submitted to, to God, but in the next phase of his life, say about 14 years, God will teach him submission and adversity with his uncle Laban. But God was gracious enough not to take back the covenant with Jacob after seeing such an unspiritual response. But what do we see instead? We see God being willing to be called the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob from here on forward. That's the divine title that God's going to bear through the rest of scriptures. In Psalm 46, it says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So what should our response be? 
Well, looking to Jacob in, his, in this story, I have two things for us to do and one thing for us to not do. So first, if we look at Jacob's response to seeing God and hearing his blessing, we should be amazed and in awe of God, just like Jacob. God promised to never leave Jacob, and he promises to never leave us. This is all grace. Like I said before, grace is Jacob's only hope, and grace is our only hope. This should drive us to be in awe of the very God who promises us this. You know, I, I think for a lot of us, we, can, we know in our heads that God is with us, but have we let it sink into our hearts? Have we let it travel from our heads to our hearts and know deep down that God is with us? If we have, it should only drive us to awe and fear of God. And secondly, it should drive us to worship him, just like Jacob did. He says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. The, the aim and the, the goal and the prayer of gathering week after week as a local body is that we would encounter God. When we sing, when we sit under the preaching of God's word, even when we, when we sit in community groups, God is there. We want this to be a place that you encounter God week after week and worship him for who he is. That's why we gather. May we say with Jacob, surely the Lord is in this place. And may we see that he is and worship him. Now the third thing is something that we don't want to do, and that's model his vow to God. God is not to be bargained with. He doesn't want our ifs and our thens. He wants our hearts. So why can we stand confident before God without bringing our ifs and our thens? It's because God has been faithful to his promise to Jacob, and we've seen that in the person and the work of Jesus. In John's gospel, in the, in the first chapter, Jesus is gathering his first disciples, and he says this in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is the latter, and only through him do we have access to God. Jesus was and is the focus of the latter in Jacob's dream. The ascended Son of Man mediates the commerce between heaven and earth on our behalf. He's everywhere at all times, hearing our prayers and our cries to him. He's at both ends of the ladder, as Jehovah on top and Jehovah saves, or Jesus at the bottom. But what happens when we do bring our ifs and our thens to Jesus? What are we met with? We're met with a grace like no other. The resurrected Jesus meets a doubting Thomas like this in John 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. 
Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. The picture we get here is Jesus coming to Thomas, extending his nail-scarred hands. We don't get a picture of of Jesus rebuking Thomas for his unbelief, but we get a picture of, of a God who pursues a doubting Thomas in his unbelief and reaches for him in his doubt. The nail-scarred hands show four of the most core truths in all of Christianity. It shows the love of the Father. It shows the sacrifice that he made to purchase us. It shows the victory over sin, and it shows the hope that we have for resurrection. We serve a God who always promises to be with us, and we serve a God who always keeps his promises. So take heart, fleeing sinner. You are met by a God who loves you and wants your heart. He sent the latter Jesus so that we may have access to him and a relationship with him. This should only drive us to amazement and fear and worship of a God who loves you and died for you. One of my favorite songs says this, But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. As the worship team comes forward, I'm going to read a a quote from Kent Hughes in his commentary on Genesis. He says this, Now you may be insulted when I suggest that we are all Jacobs, but if you are, you simply do not know yourself or the Bible. We are all people who often find ourselves in flight because of our sins. We are people who then imagine that God is not with us because of our sins. But the reality is, there is a ladder that extends between heaven and earth for us. And the one who controls that ladder from top to bottom is the Lord himself. Astonishingly, he sends his angels to us as ministering spirits. He directs our lives. He finds us in our solitary desolations and ministers to us. Why? Because he is the God of grace. And he's not done with us. Truly, he will not be done with us in this life. We need to take these stupendous truths to heart. Our inner eye must perpetually behold the vision of the angel-freighted ladder, superintended by the awesome Son of Man, who directs heaven's traffic for our sanctification and his glory. Jacob is on the run from his brother and encounters God. He comes face to face with a grace that can change his life and a grace that can change our life. How awesome is this place? Surely the Lord is in this place. So let's worship him in awe and amazement and fear, knowing deep in our hearts that he's with us and that he meets us where we are with lavish grace upon grace. Let's pray. Father, you are good and we love you and we admit that oftentimes we forget that you are with us. But we praise you and we worship you for that fact that you are with us. God, go before us this week, and in everything we do, help us to glorify you. In your name we pray, amen.